0: Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. We begin the pod today with some sad news, with the unexpected passing of Kentucky Fried Rasslin's Scott Bowden. We had actually been talking to Scott about being on the pod last week, but that didn't happen and we were tweeting with him over the weekend. So we were certainly shocked when we woke up earlier this week to find out he had passed away. Of course, condolences to his friends and family. Today on the show, we're happy to say we finally got Bo James, the King of Kingsport, to tell all sorts of tall tales. We begin by talking about Scott, who Bo had just done his podcast a few weeks ago. And then we're going to talk about all things Southern wrestling, whether it's Knoxville slash Southeastern slash Continental slash USA, Memphis, the Fullers, the Goldens, the Welches, the Jarretts, Nick Goulis, all sorts of things. We talk about Bo's career beginning at age 16 uh, until the present day. All sorts of uh, wonderful stories from Bo, including his friendship with people like Buddy Landell and Jimmy Valiant and Ricky Morton and all sorts of other people. We're hoping that Bo's going to come back at some point to tell more of his great stories. If not, you can check out his website, and his Patreon for more stories. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. Uh, I've been trying to get our next guest on for a good while, uh, we had our scheduled our show scheduled for tonight, and unfortunately, we've had a bunch of sad news come up in between when we scheduled and when we're recording. Um, but to talk about that and a whole bunch of other things, I'm happy to finally welcome to the show the king of Kingsport, Bo James. How's it going, Bo?
1: Doing well, doing well, other than sitting at home going crazy.
0: I I can sympathize. I am on my third or fourth week of not working and hopefully soon but until then i've got i've been making podcasts and reading books and watching a lot of wrestling so i'm sure if i can't be working that's the next best thing i guess
1: yeah i, I i've spent a lot of time with my three-year-old great uh, great nephew which was great being off road, and I've did a lot of research. But I'm a guy that is used to being in three to five different towns a week, and I have not made a town in almost seven weeks, and it is driving me crazy.
0: I know there was a thing that somebody had said. I think it was either Cubs or Fredo that Fellino like had. I guess since he didn't wrestle in Either in March or he won't wrestle in April. Was like the first month he hadn't wrestled since like 1980 something. He had like a oh wow a, a consecutive streak going ever since then. But you know it's like unless I guess unless you uh, I guess unless you work for Vince, you're probably not working these days. Yeah, that's
1: the way it looks. You know, and it's it, in some ways it's good because guys are getting time to heal their bodies and refresh and be ready to go again. But like I said, for guys like me who have been doing this for 31 years, every time I say that it sets me back. Uh, But 31 years of making towns and, you know, I've had two breaks in those 31 years, Uh, had to have a surgery on my ear uh, in 2004. And then I had to have back surgery in 2014. Both of them set me up for, I think about five months but other than that, my longest break probably had been maybe a week. Uh, I know before the ear surgery, I think the longest break I'd had between matches was five days. So it's it's a whole new world to uh, try to adjust to.
0: Definitely. Um, like I said, we, we're going to start the show with some sad news. Um with the the passing this week of Scott Bowden, I had been talking to Scott. He was he was supposed to do the pod sometime last. We had talked about maybe doing it last week because uh, he had said he was going to have some free time, and we had we were working on some dates, and I didn't hear back. And then uh, we were tweeting some stuff back and forth over the weekend, and then I woke up the other day to find out that he had passed away, and you had just done kentucky fried wrestling a couple weeks ago
1: and i i had just talked to him i think it was friday and he passed away on monday it was either either thursday or friday and he was helping me uh, i'm getting ready to do a line of t-shirts like he did with memphis t-shirts i'm getting ready to do it with southeastern and continental t-shirts and scott was helping me along the way and, and teaching me about how to do it and the last email that I got from him was very detailed step-by-step step, of how to make sure everything is done and done correctly and I had planned on calling him this week and you know we're not guaranteed our next breath and it's a sad situation he's, on, he's only two years older than I am and you know it was a shock when I saw the the post from Kevin Lawler on Monday night that, that he had passed
0: yeah, he had done the, he had done the show uh, a couple years ago. It was f- when the, we had it was fairly new when we started the pod, and uh, I had him on right after Tommy Gilbert passed away because I figured one he was like one of the main Memphis guys, sort of in the podcast circuit. Plus, you know, he had worked with both Eddie and Doug, so I figured he would be a good guy to have on. And we talked about a bunch of wacky Memphis stuff and things like that and i talked to him on and off about you know doing some stuff uh coming on but he was busy and then like he had that hiatus when he really wasn't doing the pod anymore and he had just come back since he had switched networks he was doing it with with chris and bix now over there so you know i figured it was a good time to have him on plus i've been trying to do more pods lately being at home with nothing to do and, you know, we had been talking about some stuff about what to talk about. And then, yeah, I hadn't heard anything last week. And I was like, oh, he's busy because, you know, I know, you know, he worked in PR. So I'm sure I don't know if they're really busy or really not busy. And so I was like, well, I didn't hear from him. So I'll try again next week. And then, you know, there there you go. But, yeah, it was just, you know, I always love listening to his pod because, Memphis is one of those uh areas that I came to very late. We were before we started recording, we were sort of talking about what we got uh on T V uh when I was a, when I started watching wrestling and people who've listened to listened to the last pod that I did with Mike VV knows that we always talk about what shows we could watch uh, sort of in the Baltimore area Baltimore DC area in the mid 80's when we both started watching and it was just Memphis was just one of those things that I did not see oddly enough until I got to college and it was when they put it on FNN score that was the first time I got to see Memphis live I mean I had read about it in the magazines, and I sort of knew everybody but that was the that was the first time I got to see it and admittedly it was probably one of its downturns but it was still cool to finally get to see it but of course you know you being in tennessee you got continental and memphis growing up
1: and and mid-atlantic
0: and mid-atlantic
1: yeah i i I lived for where i live it's the same distance to nashville as it is to charlotte so right where the two territories you know in knoxville was a different territory but going back to the the early days of Tennessee wrestling when everything was ran out of Nashville before they opened the other territories up here. So I live right in an area plus Jim Crockett senior was born and raised about 20 miles from where I'm sitting right now. This was, he was from Bristol. This is his home here in East Tennessee. And this was the first place that he promoted before he got the opportunity to go to Charlotte and take over the operation in Charlotte. So I lived right in a great area to see wrestling, uh, you know, southeastern Memphis and mid-Atlantic, and for a short time when I was a kid, for a few weeks, we got the Sheik's TV, which was awful. At that by that point, it was big-time country, big-time wrestling. Thirty minutes about country music and thirty minutes about wrestling, as the Sheik was trying to promote concerts at the time, and and then of course the PAFOS when they opened up ICW and the Knoxville War, give them an avenue to get into East Tennessee. So I, I got to see very early randy savage as a kid so i i I grew up in a great place and all these people were running live events here too so I, i lived in a great place to see a lot of people as a kid
0: yeah see i started watching in the mid in the mid 80s but i was a teenager i did not watch as a kid so i always tell people that i always look at things a little differently because i never went through that phase of watching as a kid and learning learning about the business and such and such and all that stuff. So, like, I came to it sort of fully formed. So I always say that, like, I look at things a little differently than most of the people who were, like, lifetime fans. But, like, I started at a great time, especially being in Maryland, since we were right between – we were sort of in the the crosshairs between Crockett and and Vince. So, you know, the first show I went to, I think, was – wwf show in late 85 in baltimore and then we went to an nwa show i think the beginning of 86 in baltimore and then we went to the bash in philadelphia and of course little did i know how infamous that first bash in 86 would be from philadelphia between the country music which needless to say did not go over like uh they probably had hoped (laughs) in in vet stadium And then, you know, all the other things about that show and, you know, the blade getting stuck in Wahoo's head and it almost being shut down and some of the matches. Yeah. So it's like I kind of fortunate that, like, I went to, like, one of the famous batches and then, you know, it went on from there. The thing that. And that
1: Delbert McClintog, Delbert McClintog doesn't even work in some of the country music places like here you know he he was a real niche act and i don't know why in the world they booked him for philadelphia
0: i yeah i don't even remember if we stayed because i'm sure that my friend jim and i went with my parents and i'm sure that i that dragging them to wrestling was one thing but probably asking them to stay for a concert afterwards probably was a bridge too far because i don't remember staying for the concert so i couldn't even Pass judgment on that now and the funny thing is i i ended up going to college in bloomington and as far as i know i don't remember i i assume bruiser had shut down by then because i don't remember anything about local wrestling out there and of course not really understanding what i do now it's like now i realize that well i didn't have a car but you know i was only a couple of hours away from going from going to see matches in Evansville, which I didn't really, you know, which I'm sure I did not really grasp was part of the Memphis circuit back then. But I don't think I saw anything local. The I think the only wrestling I saw when I lived in Indiana was WrestleMania the year it was in the Hoosier Dome, and that's because I covered it for the college newspaper.
1: Uh, Bruiser would have he he still had a thirty minute. TV in some places, uh, up until the late eighties, but he didn't, he didn't run weekly. He didn't have, you know, run several nights a week like he had in, in years past, but he was still running some small towns and smaller venues in the big towns. Uh, and, but it was, he was the star, the only name value guy, you know, on the card. The rest was mostly guys that he broke in or guys that were at the end of their career. Um, Evansville, if you would ever went to the Evansville Coliseum, you would absolutely love that building, and you would have went every week.
0: You know, it just I think by the time I had a car, I, I don't know, because I know I sort of, when I was in college, my interest sort of peaked and troughed, and I know that it was in the early 90s, because I was in Bloomington from like 88 to 93. So, I know that eventually I was still living in Indiana when I started getting the observer and becoming a chape trader and all that stuff. So I became less interested in sort of the current scene and more interested in Japan and then getting old stuff. The one thing I regret in hindsight is late in 93 I was going cause in between the summer from me going to uh, finishing there and going to grad school, I was going to go down and do an article on Smoky mountain. And I was, I figured the closest thing, the closest show I could get to from Bloomington was to go to Pikeville. But for whatever reason. And then I think I was going to go to one of the fan weeks once I was in grad school and that ended up not having either, but it was just funny. Cause I remember this is how long ago it was like, I remember f- like faxing Sandy Scott back and forth about coming down and planning and all this stuff. And I think like the week before I was going to go to that show in Pikeville, like there were just really bad storms. And I was like driving by myself all the way from Bloomington down to Pikeville and back. I was just like, you know, I'm an adventurous young twenty year old but not that adventurous. It's like maybe that'd have been
1: you'd have been you'd have been better off going to Knoxville because Pikeville back then was two lane roads.
0: Yeah, see, I I I think back sometimes and I'm like, you know, I kinda wish that I had gone just to say that I had gone, but sometimes I wonder, who knows what kind of weird kind of travel travel experience that would have been. But, uh, yeah, the, and then if I would have, uh, um, I was going to get my PhD, I was going to go to Middle Tennessee State. So, like, had I gone there, then I would have been, like, you know, smack dab in the middle of the state, and I'm sure I would have really got back into stuff then, because that would have been, like, 94, 95. So, you know, you would have had Smokey on one end and USWA on the other, and then all the other indie stuff that was going on at the time. So, that would have been cool.
1: uh, Yeah, Middle Tennessee State's about 20 minutes from the fairgrounds in Nashville, so you would have been right there for their Saturday night events.
0: Yeah, and it's funny, I think I ended up, I think I didn't go, I think. It's funny, in hindsight, I did not actually see wrestling in Indiana again until, like, 2000, I looked this up the other day, I think 2007 or 2008, I took a trip out to do an article for the magazine on Ohio Valley and Derby City when they were still doing both of those shows, because I was talking to to Bolan at the time. And then when I was out there... Like the day before, Mitch Ryder had run an indie show in New Albany that I ended up going out to, which was funny because it was full of a bunch of East Coast guys, like uh, like Larry Sweeney worked that show and Hero worked that show, and I knew those guys from Chikara, so it was really funny. So it was this, and and Mitch obviously was working at Chikara then too, so it was this weird mixture of like. Uh, Midwest vets plus East Coast guys, because I think like Gypsy Joe ref a match on that card, and I think you know, like I said, Sweeney was on there and uh, Dundee worked, you know, even in 2008, and you know, like I said, Hero and Claudio were on the show and Mitch and I think Flash Flanagan. So it was a weird, it was a weird hodgepodge. I had to I actually looked it up. I was like. I wanted to look to make sure to see if like if you <laughs> feel like you had worked it, and I just didn't realize it that because like, I was trying to figure out if I had ever seen you work before. I, person, in I was
1: in the yeah in the mid nineties I worked quite quite a bit in Indiana for uh, Delphia Richendoller, who was a, one of the first lady. Independent promoters, all the way back to when they were called outlaw promoters, she ran wrestling in Kentucky and Indiana for decades. And I actually wrestled in Bloomington for her. I wrestled in Jasper. I wrestled in Boonville. I wrestled in Evansville for USWA, Reft in Evansville for USWA. And then sometime in the... Early two thousands, I booked Evansville at the Coliseum for a little while on Wednesday nights. Um, so yeah, I've, I've wrestled in Indiana quite a bit over the years.
0: See, I don't remember ever going to wrestling while I lived in Bloom. Well, like I don't remember there ever being wrestling in Bloomington that I can that I can recall. But I mean, it's possible there was, and I just didn't know it. Especially if it would have been like out of t- you know, like off you know, like somewhere in town that, like, where we didn't go, where the college students didn't go, that was, like, a towny place. But I don't remember ever, because, you know, I was looking up stuff, and I, I, I looked back, I was trying to figure this one out, too. Did you ever work in Martinsville, West Virginia, for a company called Atlantic Terror Championship Wrestling?
1: See, I... Who would have been the promoter?
0: I don't remember. It was, it was a. Well, it was okay, a, was was it? Uh, I'm trying. Was it at the a place called the Cadillac Club? I don't think so. I look. I tried looking at the cards that I remember going to, but I didn't yeah. See, but I
1: wrestled I, in, I wrestled in Martinsburg for uh, Shane Shadows, but I, I don't know what the name of his promotion. I I wrestled for so many different independent well, that's, promotions over yeah, the that's years. Why I know I was, I know the promoters, but not necessarily the name of the promotion.
0: Yeah, it was a, it was like a kind of young, tall, bald black guy, but I cannot remember his name to save. My, I probably should check with because this is when this is during the time, in the late '90s when I was, I was doing some like programming stuff like that for, for Dan McDivitt, and Mark Schrader for Maryland Championship Wrestling. And so I used to go to – and then I also went uh, with Jeff Amdor. I would go with him to indie shows where he was the timekeeper. So I ended up going to, like, a lot of random indie shows in that time, and then he had a regular gig working out in Martinsburg. And so, so I mean, it would be – so it was, I don't know, two or three two hours maybe for us to – because it would be an hour for me to drive from where I live to meet him outside Baltimore and then we would drive from Baltimore out to Martinsburg and then and then back but i was looking at cuz he used a lot of the Maryland indie guys and then like the occasional sort of old WWF guy on top but i i tried to look from like when the time that I worked there like I didn't see your name in any of the results but I mean that doesn't mean anything
1: right but I, I wrestled in Martinsburg. I wrestled in uh, Falling Waters I've wrestled in uh was it is it Chase City wherever the horse track is at uh something city right there by it there's a there's a racetrack uh I've wrestled over there in Romney um I've wrestled never part of West Virginia, places that you've never heard of. Uh, but that that area over there, that, that panhandle area over there, which you had Rambo in Hagerstown with with his school, so a lot of them guys would wrestle on those West Virginia cards right there, and then Pennsylvania is right there where a lot of guys would work to Pennsylvania, which I've wrestled all the way up through there in Pennsylvania too. Um, it's just. Like I said, I, I remember promoter names, and not necessarily the name of the promotion, because everybody, in some point in the '90s, in early 2000s, everybody started coming up with any kind of name that they could for for wrestling oh, promotions, yeah. you know. And I, I would look at the poster, and I, I I don't even know what that stands for or what that means, you know. <laughs> so if I'm confused by it, I know the average fan is confused by looking at that.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I've been to so many indie shows that it's hard to. You know, I mean, especially back then. I mean, like in the mid, like the mid to late '90s and early 2000s, because it was like, yeah, I was going to like those those Maryland shows, and then I know, like, I went to a couple of Blaine shows, like up in Pennsylvania, and all, all the way up into. Allentown and then some of the weird places that, yeah. that Quack, you know, promoted Chikara in the... Yeah. Like, when they were really tiny. I mean, or before they got bigger, I should say, and, you know, like in Allentown and, you know, driving two hours to the that fire hall they used to run in the middle of Pennsylvania. It's just... I mean, these, I'm sure these are things that, that you certainly know about. The driving... Yeah. Uh, you know, and this was back in the... The... Uh, when you printed off mapquest to try and find places because we didn't have gpss yet
1: uh Rand McNally my best friend you know as uh, I still to this day refuse to use a gps refuse to use one and I drive and I tell people that ride with me I say look the day that I need a gps to get around through these mountains from Chattanooga to say Pittsburgh is the day you need to take me home and tell me i never need to leave again because i've traveled these roads for so long so many years hey uh, is blaine is he
0: still living i don't think so i think he passed away i want to say a fair number of years ago okay but i i don't i i don't remember when but i cuz i thought it had been long enough ago that i still lived when i lived in when I lived in Virginia Beach, I thought that's when he passed away. But I could be misremembering that because that was somebody that, like, I hadn't, uh, like, other than when I talked to him in the mid-90s. Because I stopped going to the shows up there. And then I sort of lost lost touch with that company. So, I yeah, I hadn't seen him. You know, probably since, like, 95, 96, 97. Yeah, he,
1: I, I know for a while, because I used to see him over around Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. He was had some health issues and was at the hospital there at Duke and would come by at some of the matches. And But that was around the same time you're talking about. And that's, I, I, I haven't thought about him in years too. you just said his name. That's, well, I was wondering if he was still living
0: Yeah, that was that was like sort of my peak of going around to like random indies because like, I mean, as you know, living sort of like in the middle Atlantic, there's so many. It was like because back then, like I said, Mark and Danny were promoting in Baltimore and I was working for them. And then Blaine was in Pennsylvania. And then, of course, Kettner was in was in Wilmington forever, you know, promoting ECWA and. You know, looking back and you look at like the number of quote unquote bigger names that ended up passing through, you know, when he started doing that Super 8, you know, you look back and you're like, wow, it's like, you know, Edge and Christian worked here and, uh, you know, Diamond worked there and Reckless and Quack and Don Montoya and people like that. And you're like, yeah, cause I'm sure you know the feeling. It's like. Seeing people on their way up is, is really cool. It's like seeing a rock band before they become big.
1: And some of the, some guys, I just on my latest patreon, I, I talked about seeing the Hardy Boys for the first time. and I knew the first time that I saw them, these guys are going to be something. And then I, I saw them more and more and I, I, and I got to know them and see how hungry they were for the business how much they wanted it you knew you know these guys someday and they got it a lot faster than than we thought they were going to get it and man what a run they've had
0: yeah i remember they worked they worked a couple times for 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 danny when i remember there was a show down on the eastern shore of maryland at a high school where they worked a four-way with um Both of them and then Joey Matthews and Christian York were, like, in a four-way. And that was, like, at the time, it was, you know, four of the, like, these guys doing all this super cool, jumpy – you know, it was – before the flippy stuff had sort of peaked and became ubiquitous, it was, like, new and fresh then. And, you know, I remember those guys having a heck of a match. And I remember we – I remember – around that same time seeing there was at least once it may have been at their high school where it was like one of the first times I saw the briscoes you know when they were I think they may have still been in school I don't I don't know but I mean they were super young back then seeing them work I don't remember who they worked but but like I remember definitely was one of their early early appearances
1: Joy Matthews. He's talking about him. The first time I ever saw him, I, I don't know how old he was, but he looked like he was twelve years old. I mean, he he looked like a a boy, and he he was a teenager, but but he looked much younger than what he was. And it, we were in Butner, North Carolina, and I walk in, and he's sitting there in the dressing room. This this is back way before. Guys brought their families to the matches. You know, nobody nobody was in the dressing room other than the boys. Nobody. And he's sitting there. And I think he's just some random kid. So I go over to him. I said, hey, you're, does your dad wrestle? And he looks at me real confused. And he's like, no. I said, well, get out of here. I threw him out of the dressing room. And <laughs> they brought him back. And they're like, hey, he's wrestling tonight. I said you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> you know, but there there's another guy that once I saw him and watched him and, and was around him, I knew he was going to do good for himself because he was hungry and wanted it.
0: Yeah, I remember they were they were the guys that really stood out to me when I worked when I worked for, for in Baltimore. That it was I remember like one of the first shows, it's like those guys came and then they brought they brought amy with them when she was still angelina or angelica whichever it was and, you know and it's funny now it's like she was blonde and less surgically enhanced and it was just like i don't think she worked i think she was just with them like for the weekend like because they had come up to do shots for us and whoever else but she was like, "Oh yeah, I wrestle too." And I was like, "Oh cool." And then, you know, and then she becomes a huge star.
1: Yeah. I I was I was not around her maybe once or twice uh because she got into the Carolina scene about the time that I was leaving uh moving to Memphis to go to work for Randy Hales. And then by the time I finished up there and came back up here, uh, I think she was already with ECW.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I lived here, and I only ever went to ECW once because sort of the idea of going to the arena was sort of uh, off-putting to me. Like, I'm not one for I'm not one for uh, going into cities and then going to South Philly. I you know, I haven't gone to South Philly enough on my own, going there on like a Saturday night to see wrestling was a little a little daunting by myself. So like I never I didn't go to the arena until like I was friends with Dave Shearer and I actually got to sit up with them in the Crow's Nest when they did play by play on the net. So like I only went to the arena once when it was ECW and then for a couple of indie shows, and then, you know, probably a couple of dozen times by the time you get to, like, the late 2000s when Chikara ran. But it was funny being here. It's like being an hour away, I was just like, I would I almost would rather have gone to a spot show than gone to the arena back then. And even now, it's like, I'm always, I know guys that have worked indie shows there, and I'm like, are you working anywhere else locally that like I can not go to? <laughs> cause it's funny. Cause, uh, cause I've had Sam Adonis on the podcast before and he was working one of the Lucha shows in Philly. And he's like, are you going to come? And I'm like, eh, you know, maybe. And then I was supposed to go out for one of his shows in Pittsburgh in February. Cause I was going to help bring in some of the Lucha talent, but, That fell through. But then he was supposed to work in Delaware at some Mexican nightclub uh, like a month ago. And it was like the weekend everything shut down was that show. And like I had already taken off that weekend to go see the show. And then, you know, it ended up happening. So it's funny. I keep telling him, I'm like, next time you're close, I'll come. And then it was like it takes a pandemic for me not to be able to go to see him work. It's like, you know, he's like a half an hour from my house. And I'm like, honest, I swear I was going to come this time. No kidding. <laughs> but, uh, we mentioned Scott passing away. The other person that passed away this week that I'm sure you saw over the years, um, uh, was Dick Steinborn. And, uh, for people. I don't know when people are going to listen to this, but on this week's Studcast, Ron devoted most of his show to talking about when Steinborn worked for him in Knoxville and Southeastern. And, you know, what a great guy I he was, was and all this, but, and, and it's, I'm sure, so I'm sure you saw him as a kid. And it's also interesting that not only was, he like a really great wrestler, but, he apparently was a photographer too, and did the programs and those. He sounds like a really multifaceted, interesting person. Plus, being second generation.
1: And uh, I I spent some time on the phone with Ron as he was getting ready for that, trying to look up some dates and stuff for him. Um, he called me, wanted me to help with him. I I met I saw Steinborn as a, as a kid, yeah, uh, but I was real little, so I I don't really remember him um, as a wrestler, but I knew who he was and heard his name for years and years, and I met him in 1992 or 93 at one of the very first conventions in Nashville, and he was real nice, just a nice man, and maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, when the podcasting first started getting out, and the blog talk radio was the thing, and they had the Peach State Pandemonium thing, Steinborn was on that several times, and I co-hosted that show a few times and got to talking to Dick on there. And then I got he he called me a few times, you know, wanting me to help him find some research and do stuff. But yeah, he he was a great office guy. He he was a, a good booker. Uh, he, he could do every job. Old-time wrestlers, when I started, told me, learn every job. You'll always have a job. And, and Dickie was that way. He knew every job of wrestling, every aspect, producing TV, booking programs. He probably, if you took a ring and threw it on the floor, he probably could have it together in a matter of minutes. He could do everything. His dad promoted in Florida for years and years and years. And he's one of those guys, and and I told Ron this on the phone yesterday, sadly, he's going to be forgotten in time because there's not very much footage of him. And if you're listening to us now, I will recommend when you get done with this podcast, go to YouTube and look up Dick Steinborn and Siegler from Atlanta. That is the match that all the boys hold in high regard of how you have a TV a competitive T V match and it's it's something to see. And uh, you know, he had a long career. He booked places, he wrestled everywhere, he worked in the office many places, and he's one of those unsung heroes of the business that most modern people have no idea who he is. They wouldn't even recognize the name if they heard us say it.
0: Yeah, it's funny that I actually tweeted that match to Ron in case he hadn't he didn't know about it, and then he wrote me back and he said all three of the people in this ring worked for me because it was Siegler, Steinborn, and Ronnie West was the referee. And that was oh, a yeah. match. And that was a match from from Gunkel and I think like '73. And it's the cool thing about that match is it was apparently posted on YouTube by some of Tommy Siegler's family. I guess that must have been like a match they had like in their family archives.
1: Uh, Ted Allen saved that match. Ted Allen had a tape of that, that he saved forever. And when guys came to Ted to train, that was the match that he would have them watch and tell them when you can, when you're able to have a match like this, then you can call yourself a wrestler.
0: That's cool. Um, one of the things since we were talking about Scott before, and I, I sent you this clip before we started and I didn't know if you remembered it or not, but this is something that, that I had planned to talk to Scott about because it, it's, it's funny cause I don't remember seeing this at the time, although it may have been right when I started first starting watching Memphis and I really wouldn't have understood it, but, um, there is an angle Especially, this is interesting now that you listen to Ron and you and Scott and all these people talk about, and Chris and Vix talk about stuff from back then. But they did an angle in 1988 in Memphis, and I assume this is when Robert was booking. That they did an angle where Robert brought back Nick Goulis, and they were doing an angle to claim that Jerry Jarrett had actually stolen Memphis from Nick Goulas, and I don't know if it was from Roy or from Buddy, but that they were going to get uh, the CWA back where it belonged, away from the Jarrett's, and back with the Fullers and the Goulises. And, like, Robert actually went and they did an interview with Nick Goulas, which is really funny now, watching seeing Nick Goulas on 1988 Memphis TV. So do you remember do you remember this angle or do you know like sort of any of the backstory of it?
1: Oh, I know all about
0: it. Okay, good.
1: If <laughs> that that actually was from 89. It actually oh, was okay. from 31 actually from 31 years ago today. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. There was a dispute a a, a real-life dispute going on around that time between Jerry Jarrett and Buddy Fuller about the rights and the promotion rights and points in the office and different things. Because when Jerry Jarrett split off from Nick and went opposition to Nick, Buddy Fuller went with him. And Buddy was a partner because when in 1977, when they go to Channel 5, it is Jarrett Welch Promotions. Buddy is part of the part of the promotion. And he was there for a few years and then he was gone. So there was still Robert asked Nick if he wanted to do this. And Nick said, yes, I'll do it. They took the camera to him, and, and he did what you saw. Now, here, people listening right now may know Nick Goulas' name from the Internet, or they may know Nick Goulas' name from hearing people talk about him on other podcasts. They, they may hear about other things about Nick Goulas. And almost everything that you hear about Nick Goulas is bad. He was a horrible payoff guy. He treated you terrible. He did this. He did that. If you ask Robert Fuller, who's the greatest promoter he ever worked for, he'll tell you Nick Goulas. And he says it in that video, and he means it. He truthfully means it. If you ask Jackie Fargo, when Fargo was alive, who was the greatest promoter you ever worked for, he will tell you Nick Goulas. Now, does that mean that they always got along and they didn't butt heads at times. No, it doesn't. But if Nick was such a horrible payoff guy, if Nick was such a terrible person, then why did the Fargos and Robert Fuller and Tojo Yamamoto and Gypsy Joe and and all these guys, why did they stay with Nick Goulas for 25 and 35 years? Most of the narrative that you hear about Nick Gulas comes from people that were not top guys that only passed through Tennessee. They have to have an excuse of he treated us terrible. he you know, Whatever. Everybody has to have a sad story and some kind of excuse for something. But Nick, his top guys were making big money and he took care of them. Now, when guys were first starting there, young guys, yeah, they didn't make a lot of money, but where were you going to make a lot of money when you were a young guy breaking in the business? Uh, when when Dundee and George Barnes came to Tennessee in 1975, take a guess how many full-time wrestlers were employed by Goulas Welch Enterprises and living in Nashville. Well,
0: knowing from what I've heard Uh, especially on Ron's show, I would probably guess like 100 maybe or more.
1: 100. They employed 100 wrestlers at all times. And you know what? Every one of those guys wrestled every night. Tell me any other promotion in the world right now that can say that. Tell me any other promotion that – any probably any other time that can tell you that Tennessee was such a a spread out territory it's called the Tennessee territory because that was where it was based but they ran Alabama Mississippi Arkansas Indiana Kentucky um parts of uh West Virginia and parts of Virginia they they would Missouri and Arkansas. So there was like nine different states that they ran. They had three full-time crews. They had the Memphis end. They had the Nashville end. And then they had the – they sent talent to East Tennessee for years for the Kingsport end and the Knoxville end. Kingsport and Knoxville were separate until 75. Then they had crews that only worked spot towns. Once you made your run through the big cities – You would do like the Nashville Inn first, which was Nashville, Chattanooga, Birmingham. Then you'd go work the Memphis Inn, Memphis, Jonesboro, Louisville, Evansville. You'd do those two runs, and then they would take you and just put you in the spot shows. You would just go work the small towns until it was time to bring you back and redo you again with somebody else in the big towns. They had an unbelievable business that ran forever. And people can say whatever they want to say about Nick, but Nick was successful, and a lot of people were successful with him. And a lot of old-time wrestlers will tell you, Jerry Jarrett stole the territory. I've heard that from many people's mouths, many people's mouths, that he stole it. It was a dispute. They went head-to-head. Jarrett won. You can look at, look at it ever how you want to, but Nick Nick passed away I think less than a year after that that video was shot that you were talking about. That was his last chance to get on TV and tell people what he thought. He's shooting the stuff he's saying in that. Other than Birmingham, he mentioned that Jarrett took Birmingham. Jarrett didn't take Birmingham. Uh, Nick sold Birmingham to Ron Fuller in 1980. But all the other stuff that Nick goes, he believed in his heart. It's real. Robert, Robert loved Nick Goulis and looks at him as a guy that gave him his break and gave him a long career in wrestling. So he felt, I can do this angle. I can get Nick involved. People can see Nick one last time, and we hopefully can make some money with it.
0: As they say, personal issues draw money. Yeah,
1: and I've had people go, "Why would Jerry Jarrett let that happen on his TV?" Here's why: if it'll draw money, it don't matter. <laughs> you can't have feelings and be in the wrestling business. You can't get your if you don't have feelings, your feelings can't get hurt. Therefore, you're all right people with feelings will not last long. So if he wants to go out there and do it and they're going to do it and turn it into something to make money with it, then there's nothing, nothing above reaching.
0: I'll say, I think if you started trying to rank things on Memphis TV that you wonder why they did it, why they would allow that to be on TV. I don't think that would even probably get in your top 20. I mean, no. Yeah. I say you can start with, you know, bill and buddy beating up jeff and then beating up jerry's one good eye and jerry cries on tv about not being a good dad it's like you know i you know it's sort of unfair to jeff i always say it's too bad for him that like his best angle was the first angle he was ever in and it sort of was all downhill from there only because that's such a great angle
1: but you know and jeff had some good stuff in there him and billy with uh Goto and, and uh, uh, Akio Sato and tojo that was good stuff but yeah he just he came right in on the last big sellout run of Memphis
0: which nicely segues into maybe the last thing we'll get to tonight and hopefully you'll come back and tell more, more stories at a later date but uh, the the main thing I wanted to hear was wanted to hear some stories about bud Rowe because I I instantly loved, loved. like I said, I started watching in 85 right when Buddy got the Crockett. And, you know, as the new nature boy and all this stuff, and, you know, I did not know at the time, you know, that he had been in Mid-Atlantic before as a young brown-haired uh, enhancement guy. I did not know about him in Butchery in Mid-South at that point. I just knew sort of what a cocky, funny jerk his character was at that oh, time. Oh, there was no fear. No well, But but you know I mean watching as a teenager, and uh, you know and then and then he disappears. You know, you know later we all found out why. And you know, seeing him appear and disappear and then you know he's back. You know, a year later and Crockett this time with with Dundee like you know when they. They shoot up for the Crockett Cup, and then they stayed a little while, and then he was gone. And then he would come back a couple of years later, and then he was gone. You know, and, and then, you know, by then I'm a sheet reader and a tape trader, and I know more about it. And then, you know, I see him in Memphis, and I see him uh, in Smoky Mountain and various other things. But, uh, you know, I guess maybe the last great thing he did was that great uh, I'm my own worst enemy promo when he was smoking out when he turned baby face. But you were really good friends with Buddy. So just tell us, some, tell us a couple Buddy stories.
1: <laughs> Let me think of some that I can publicly tell. Uh, here, here's the first thing about Buddy. And he would tell you he was his own worst nightmare. He, he was his own worst enemy and but he also was probably the most less stressed wrestler of his generation he probably was the he, he one told he told me one time he said if you don't care they can't own you now think about that for a minute if you yourself don't care then you're not going to buy into what they're telling you. If they put this on you, they own you. If, if you buy into what they're doing and, and what they're selling and what they're going to put this much behind you, this press behind you, then you have all that pressure to live up to. You have all of that on top of you, and you have it on top of yourself to go out there every night. Buddy knew how good he was. He knew he could talk, he knew he could wrestle, he knew he could fight, he knew he could do everything. Why do I have to prove it every night? If I have to go out there every night and prove it to myself, then I'm I'm only fooling myself. If, If I have to go out there and prove it to them every night, then they don't really believe in me. So if I don't care if they believe in me or not, They can't own me. I do not become a part of this machine of this pressure and this stress that that led to so many people having breakdowns and so many people having, you know, horrible relationships with their families and everything else. I knew Buddy. I knew Budro. Two different people. Two different people. But I'm one of the few people that knew Bill. One of the few. I saw him with his children. I saw him with his grandson. I saw him far removed from the business. I saw him far removed from the boys. I saw the real person. And when you got to know that guy, that guy was really good. He was a good human being. When you got to see Buddy, you knew it was only so long once you got to Buddy that Budrow was going to come along. And when Budrow came along, it's time to go to the house because you don't know what's coming next. If you kept him away from the business and kept him away from the boys, he was fine. But once he got around and once he got so much success to a point, he would question himself of why am I doing this other than a job? And he was a huge wrestling fan growing up. I mean, a huge fan uh, growing up in Knoxville. Heck, everybody grew up in East Tennessee at one point was a wrestling fan. But he knew – if I get to this point and I want to keep going to, say, the flare, the Horseman, the Dusty, the Magnum, to that point, then the, the business becomes every second of your life. Every second. And he can't remove it to be with his kids. He, he was really a, a complex guy, but he was also a very simple guy once you got to know him. And he would mess up. He would become Budro. You know why he became Budrow? He wanted to get fired. He wanted to go somewhere else. He had got bored. So he would leave, go somewhere else, start all over, get to that point. Ah, I'm done here too. Heck with it. And he, buddies, and I'm not getting any. Any details, but I I heard a lot about Buddy's childhood and stuff, and it was not not very good. And he wanted to make sure that his two daughters had a dad and had a good relationship and had a good family, and he did that. And, you know, I I feel so bad for his wife, Donna. I feel so bad for, for his oldest daughter, Celeste, because they lost the baby girl, Colby, and then they lost Buddy six or eight months later. That's a lot to deal with for any family. And but Buddy, Buddy was fun, you know, until a point. And I, I I choose to look at Buddy that I knew on a personal relationship away from everybody else. And not many of us had that. Ricky Morton had that relationship with Buddy. We may have been the only two. Well, Kim Burchfield, another guy, another wrestler, uh, Kim. But maybe the three or four, less than five of us, knew that that real person. And 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 I'm sad about that. If the rest of the people would have known the buddy that we knew, he would be looked at differently. But who else can you say didn't care if they were the world champion or not? <laughs> yeah. who, who who, else could you say answered the phone and said I ain't coming don't never call me again and then, and then pull it out of the wall nobody there's nobody else in the business that did that so that makes Buddy even more of a one of a kind and you know traveling with Buddy was fun Buddy, Buddy loved old music he knew all the old rock and roll stuff from the fifties and sixties. And he knew all the love songs of the seventies and, you know, he'd sing and go on. and, And, he, he just, he was a natural entertainer. And when he had nobody else to entertain, he would entertain himself. His wife, Donna deserves every award and every blessing for putting up a buddy for all the years they were, they were married 30 some years. You know, only wife he ever had. How many people in the wrestling business can say they were married to the same woman from the time they were 20 years old to the time that they died? I, Bill Eady, maybe, maybe one or two more. Not many. And But, boy, she put up with a lot of stuff over the years. And I lived with him for a while, and I lived in her basement. And I used to be woke up to every morning hearing her say, buddy, you had better not. And I, I do, man, I need to stay down here for a couple of hours now. <laughs> and, but once you got Buddy around the business, it changed because I think everybody changes once you get around the business. Because you, maybe not as much with the young guys now, because the young guys now do not know the art of work and working, and I don't mean in the ring, I mean working the people you're with, working, trying to get out of paying trans, trying to do this, I mean, it it was a game of always working everybody around you. And as long as you knew they were working, and they knew you were working, it was fun. And there's a difference between trying to work each other out of a few bucks on gas or food or whatever, than just being a line con man because it, it was a competition. It was, it was, and Buddy was great at it. And, and Buddy would, you know, he'd start, I'd be driving. I always drove because you never wanted to ride in the car that Buddy Landale was driving. Let me tell you that. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about that in just a second. <clears throat> but Buddy would start with something. And if he said, Hey brother, you knew right then, here it comes. <laughs> and you just cut him off right at, just cut him right off. And then you're like, well, I guess you're not having any of that today. <laughs> Buddy was known as one of the worst drivers in the history of the wrestling business. And I would guess Tommy Rich might be number two. <laughs> I, who knows how many cars they totaled over the years? I don't mean banged up. I mean, totaled. But Buddy in Louisiana, Total three cars in three days. So anybody that was in the territory at that time would never ride with Buddy when he got to Charlotte or got to the Continental or wherever else because they knew about it. In 2005, we go to a town in, Bobby Eaton's riding with me. Bobby was staying with me for a little while. And we go to a little small Kentucky town and I'm getting dressed. I think I'm in the first or second match. And Bobby comes over and he says, hey, uh, w- what number are you up? And I said, I'm early. He goes, oh, man. I said, you need something? He goes, I, I want, he said, they don't have coffee in the concessions stand. I want to go down to the store. And there was a store maybe maybe half a mile or a mile down the road. And I said, I look and it's it's like fifteen minutes to bell time. I said, if we hurry, we can do it right now. He's like, No, I'll wait till you get done. I'll wait, I'll wait. Well Buddy's sitting there. And Buddy says, Bobby, I'll I'll be glad to drive you. And Bobby turns right and looks right at him and says, Buddy, I will never get in a car that you're driving. (laughs) So this turns into like a 30 minute conversation to where buddy is i mean he is literally begging to take bobby to get a cup of coffee <laughs> and bobby will not get it give in and will not get in the car with him because bobby was in louisiana when buddy totaled the three cars in three days he knew all about it it's it's little stuff like that with buddy that you can't help but laugh when you think about it and tell stories about it buddy can make you madder than anybody I mean, he would make me to the point I wanted to punch him right in the face. And he knew it. He would push you as far as he could push you. And when you finally would blow up on him, he'd look at you and go, ain't no reason to get all mad about it, brother. And it, you couldn't help but laugh. You couldn't stay mad at him very long because he was buddy. And, you know, I my older nephews all knew him. My sister knew him. My dad, I mean, my whole family knew him. My mom, we all knew Buddy. And it, it was a sad day when he died in our family. And, and, and that anniversary is coming up in just a couple of months. It was a sad day here at my house because I have rode so many miles with him, and I wrestled him and teamed with him, and, and I lived with him, and he would – get on Donna's nerves and she'd tell him to go somewhere and he'd come stay with me for a day or two and you know it one of the things that I miss so much about the wrestling business now is the brotherhood that we had back then. And it wasn't it wasn't a friendship because it, it could it could be guys that you, you didn't really particularly care for or really like but you respected them. But Buddy, I loved him. You know, he used to tell me, love you, brother. And I'd tell him, I love you. My last words to Buddy on the phone just weeks before he died. I love you, bud. And then I get the call that he had died. He he was far removed from the business. He was raising his grandson. He was doing so good. And he called me and talked to me for two hours one night. And we just laughed and, and it it was kind of like we were doing our own podcast, just telling stories and reliving stuff. And I had no idea, man, this is the last time I'm ever going to talk to him. And, you know, same thing with Scott Bowden. Me and Scott weren't very close, but we knew each other. We, we could talk and have fun, do his podcast and stuff off the air. You never know when, when the end's coming for anybody. You don't know when it's coming for yourself. And, you know, I've got to the point I've been around so long. I'm a, a bridge to the generation before me, my generation, and now the young guys. I st- 31 years I've been in this business. I was 14 years old when I started. I look at that now, and that blows my mind. What, how in the world was I so blessed to start in this business at 14 years old? to be a boss at 16, to get to wrestle my heroes, travel with my heroes, get to know these guys, get to grow up in a business where I got to be in different town every day, get to help guys get started in this business, see so many guys start out to go on to be huge stars. I've lived a crazy blessed life, and Buddy Landale is a big part of that crazy blessed life. And, and I think about him, man. He he, he hangs in my office. is a picture, eight by ten of me and him, and hangs in my office. I see him several times a day when I go in and out of there. And and my nephews all have stories about him. You know, we we didn't call him Budro. I, I don't even know. I think Ricky started the nickname. I don't know where it's. We called him Budhole. Like a butthole, but Bud. That's what we called him. My, my nephew Zach thought his name was Butthole till he was, was probably six years old. You know, but the Buddy Landale that people saw on TV, that was only a portion of, of who he was. And what I'm so happy, almost his whole career is on video. I mean, you can watch the, the Mid-Atlantic runs. You can watch the Continental runs, the Memphis run. You can even see his first TV match with Bob Orton Jr. in that little studio in Kentucky for the Paphos So he's a guy that I can talk about on podcasts like this or I can tell young guys about in the dressing room, and I can say, look him up on YouTube. Look him up on the network. And they can go watch his whole career, and they can see the greatness of him. Because there's no doubt he was unbelievable in the ring. Standing drop kick, that corkscrew elbow, threw one of the best punches ever thrown in the business. He could have a match with anybody. He didn't care if he won or lost. He didn't have an ego about that at all. And, and I think one of the, I think one of the worst things, and, and it goes back to, they own you. Renesto put the Nature Boy gimmick on him in Puerto Rico. That was his first heel run, and that's where he became the Nature Boy. He thought he had to live up to being the Nature Boy. And then he got around Flair, and he thought, this is what they want me to be. Nobody can be that. And I'm not talking about in the ring, I'm talking about the guy outside the ring that lived the life that he lived. No, nobody could live that but him. And it's almost killed him how many times. And Buddy would get to that point. He just said, Enough is enough. I got to go home for a while. I got to go do this for a while. And he was successful in every selling cars, wrestling, whatever it was he chose to do, he could do it. He taught himself how to play drums. He could he could write poetry and write songs. He could he could draw sketches. He he was he was a true artist at many levels. And I think a lot of times those are the hardest people to get to, to deal with because they get so they get bored so easy because well oh, I did this and I want to do something else and I want to do something else and then they get to the point like well, who cares it's time to go home. And that that was Buddy Landale.
0: Yeah, we were talking – it's funny when uh, I did the podcast with Mike last week. We were talking about – we were going through a whole bunch of what ifs about – especially about Crockett. We were were talking about Crockett and Watts. And just the whole thing about if Buddy hadn't – if Buddy had gone to TV the day he was supposed to. Like how different things would have been, not just for him, but for like almost the whole company, because it's like if they put if Baby Doll goes with Buddy and then he feuds with Flair, then Baby Doll doesn't turn on Tully and join with Dusty and then what how do how do the horseman goes from there and then you think about all the things that would have that that changed, just because of that one decision Buddy made. And what would happen to Buddy? You know, what I mean, it's like, like you said, I, I, you you know,
1: what, he would have died at an early age. He he, he would have died in his twenties, no doubt. He 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 would have tried to live to the fullest of being that, that it would have killed him. And and there's no doubt in my mind, if you go back and watch those, those TBS Saturday nights, Buddy is out there doing interviews with Olin Arn. There's actually a six man tag with the Andersons and Buddy on one of the Saturday night shows. I don't even know if Tully Blanchard would have been in The Horseman. It, it may have been Buddy. Or they may have never been a set of horsemen. It may have been a, something else a the over there. But he, hes I, I think Buddy liked being that what if. Because it. here we are. In 2020, still talking about it. And if we live to 2030, 2040, we're still going to be talking about him. We're still going to be talking about what if. There'll be a there'll be a whole another generation because of podcast and because of all this stuff that's being talked about now. Years from now, that are going to discover Buddy and be talking about what if. He will survive the test of time probably better being a what-if question rather than being a 90-day world champion.
0: It's funny how with all those what-ifs with Buddy, how similar you can ask all of those same questions about Eddie. I mean, it's their careers are sort of so similar about burning bridge, you know, all the talent in the world, but you know, for whatever reason, you know, didn't last, blew up, made, made enemies left, went somewhere else, came back.
1: You're talking about Eddie Gilbert. Yeah. Okay. Complete opposites. Buddy didn't care. So they can't own me. Eddie cared to the point that it owned him. It drove him nuts. That's why he would get mad and quit. I should be the king. I should be the booker. I should be the champion. I should be this. I should be that. They're, they're, they're against me. They're holding me back. I'm going to go on Channel 5 and shoot, do a shoot interview and quit on the air. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to do this. Complete opposites and what they're thinking. But Buddy didn't... He didn't care if he had a job with a national promotion at all. Hell, he, he didn't care if he had a wrestling job. Eddie did. Eddie was driven by it. And Eddie was driven to be the, the puppet master. Eddie wanted to be... As a wrestler... Eddie wanted to be the king. He wanted to be like Jerry Lawler. As a booker, he wanted to be like a Bill Dundee puppet master from the first match all the way to the final bail. And that drove him because he wanted to do that. So the reason that they burned the bridges were complete opposite of why it happened, but it happened. Uh, I think about Eddie where he would have fit in in the Monday Night Wars. There's no doubt he would have been back in WCW with some kind of behind-the-scenes role. But he wouldn't have been happy with it. Because he would have wanted to have been in the ring and being featured. Uh Once all the other promotions shut down, I don't don't know where he would fit in. You know, I, I really don't. Where would he been after 2001 when ECW and WCW are gone? He wasn't going to go work your random independent shows with no TV and no meaning unless he just needed the money. Where would you fit
0: in? It's like you would, you, have, have you would have thought he would probably initially have ended up, you know, at the beginning of TNA, especially with it being in Nashville. But again, that would depend on what would his relationship been with Jeff and Jerry at that point. It's like how many right. times, you know, that's, you know, how many times over that five or six years, you know, and would he have been would he have been one of those guys that jumped back and forth between Vince and Atlanta? You know, I'm no, here and I'm...
1: He, he, w- he would have never been able to handle the WWF machine behind... If he was... If he... There's no way he could have handled being on creative there because everything that he did would be looked at as that old wrestling. TNA would have been good, but like you said, what would it have been and how long would it have lasted? Here's where I think Eddie would be great. If he followed the business, he kept up with the business and he saw it evolving and becoming whatever it is now, I believe he would be great now as a as a consultant or something to AEW an idea guy or a detail guy. They have the idea, let me put this detail on it. But there would definitely been a period there, sadly, that I, I don't know where he would have been involved.
0: And then would he have made up with Paul and gone back to ECW at some point? Like oh, he, that
1: definitely would have. Oh yeah, that would have happened and they would have blew up again and maybe they they may have been two or three of them make ups and blow ups.
0: But yeah, that's one of the one of the great things about wrestling is playing the what if game, because there's so many things you can you know, from this guy being champion instead of that guy versus people passing away, people being, in, you know, it's like if if Barry doesn't go to the WWF the first time, where does that leave Magnum? If Magnum's accident doesn't happen, how does that change Crockett? I mean, there's so, you know, there's so many you know, this guy gets the belt instead of that guy. Had they actually let Ronnie Garvin actually be the world champion for a couple months instead of the stupid way they booked him, you know, and,
1: and, and, and did it and did it a year or two earlier or it would have really meant something. Here, here's here's the big what if from my part of the world, and people ask me about this. This is something I get fairly common what if Whitey Caldwell was not killed in the car wreck? And that answer changes East Tennessee history quite a bit because I'll tell you why. If Whitey was not killed in the car wreck, Ron Fuller would have never bought Knoxville because the Kazanas would have not been willing to sell. Business would have went on as normal. Whitey was 38, just turned 38 years old when he was killed. He had at least another 10 years of being in the ring. Now, would he, in his mid to late 40s, been the main event guy? Probably as a tag team with a young guy like Fargo. You know, people don't realize Fargo was on top until his early 50s in Tennessee. But if Whitey was not killed, Knoxville would have stayed a city office. Kingsport in the Tri-Cities would have stayed as a small territory for at least a little while. The TV was coming on, too, where Crockett's TV and other TVs were starting to show here because of cable and broadcast stuff. But there would not have been a Southeastern in, in 1974. Ron would have not been able to buy the territory because the Kazanas, they were they loved Whitey, and he was part of their business structure and everything else. So when he died, it took a lot out of everybody. It took a lot out of Ron. It took a lot out of Don. It took a lot out of, of Jim Hess. It took a lot out of John and George Kazana. It took a lot out of Les Thatcher and Frank Morrell and all the other guys that worked with Whitey over the years. But if it wouldn't have happened... They wouldn't have been drained. They wouldn't have been heartbroken. They wouldn't have been, you know, they would have still, that wheel would have been rolling, continuously rolling. And if you have a creative mind, you cannot be stopped. And you can't tell me that Ron and Don Wright did not have creative minds. Now, people from the outside world, like Ron Fuller, who saw it for the first time, and was in shock at this hillbilly wrestling, would they have got it and understood it? No. But would the people of Knoxville, Johnson City, Harlan? Oh, yeah. They got it. They've been getting it for years. The territory dropped so much in attendance when Whitey died. That's why the territory was so down when Fuller came, came here and saw it and, and made the offer to buy it. Because for a lot of people... It had gotten too sad to go to the matches because their hero was not there. Their hometown sports team was not there. Whitey's death was like the Colts leaving Baltimore. It was like the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn. He was that big of a connection to the community in the heartbeat of the towns. And that was... You know, people all the time go, what if he wouldn't have died? They, they would have drawn, drew a house for Smoky Mountain Wrestling if they had a Whitey Caldwell who could have came out and punched Ron Wright in the in the wheelchair. The place would have went nuts. They, they, they could have did something with him. Look at what they did with Ron. Imagine having a Whitey Caldwell across the ring in Tracy Smothers' corner. the the true Southern gentleman with the wild-eyed Southern boy. These are people that almost 50 years later, they're still talking about here. And thanks to podcast and Jim Cornette with Smoky Mountain Wrestling and stuff out there, we've introduced them to a whole new fan base. They may not know who Ron Wright was, but now they'll go look it up. Uh, On my Southeastern Facebook page. I get questions about Ron Wright all the time. Man, I never heard of this guy. just found him on Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Then I, I searched him and this came up. So that that's one of the things that drives me. Don Wright told me a year ago. He said, as long as me and you are alive, Ron and Whitey are alive. And that, that kind of hit me pretty hard, man, Gosh, I I do do a lot to make sure their name is out there. I do a lot to make sure people know about them.
0: Because I think when I was watching Smoky Mountain, I think the only thing I knew about Ron Wright at the time was he's the guy that had his plane blown up by the fans in Kentucky. I think that may have been been all I knew about Ron Wright at, at the time in, you know, 1995 or whatever. But shot, that, yeah. shot at
1: eight times, stabbed, cut from his neck to his tailbone, almost bled to death in the dressing room, was back in the ring 12 days later. It, attendance records that will never be broke were set by Ron and Whitey. Ron and Don against Les Thatcher and Whitey Caldwell sold 4,000 seats to the amphitheater at Chihaui Park in a monsoon rain. The rain was coming down so hard that they could not look straight at each other to lock up. They had to turn sideways and turn their head sideways so they could see each other. And the people sat in the rain to watch it. You tell me a wrestling fan will do
0: that now? I think, in a way, the true testament to how important Ron Wright was is, much like Jim Barnett. How many people do Ron Wright impressions? It's like that's that's <laughs> that's the test of uh, how important you are. If you if if people can do people can do an impression of you, and people know who you're doing as soon as you do it, then you know you've made an impression.
1: You, you know who has the best? Who? Ron Fuller. Without a doubt, Ron Fuller has the best Ron Wright impersonation and the best Don Wright impersonation. I, I laughed. I, play, I, play, I played his impersonation of Ron and Don to Don Wright, and Don Wright was sitting there listening, and he looked at me, and I thought, you know, I'm trying to read him. I don't know what if he's liking it or not. And Don Wright looks at me. and Says, "Tell him he does a pretty good job." <laughs> so, yeah, he, he's he's got the best impersonation. Period.
0: That's something Mike and I were talking about. Is it's like Ron's podcast has been such a revelation about your part of the world that even you know I've been a sheet reader for over twenty five years and like. You know, I had, like, the barest minimum knowledge of that region and even, like, the whole territory. It's like, other than, like, the occasional times I would talk to Carl Stern about stuff, you know, it's just, you know, it was such a, uh, you know, not really in the sheets, not in the after magazine. So it's like, I knew of I didn't it. didn't want it. Right. But, I mean, I didn't, you know, I sort of roughly knew who the people were and... You know, other than that, it's like, you know, I probably didn't see Continental for the first time until the David Woods era. You know, because then it became fashionable and you know, Eddie and Paul trying to get attention from, you know, Dave or the After Magazines or Pro Wrestling This Week or whoever. But it's like, you know, you know, learning now that how successful it was and not to take away anything from Memphis, but you know, we've heard for years how great the WMC ratings were on Saturday mornings. And it, you know, if Ron's numbers are true and I have no reason to think he's working that like his ratings in Knoxville was every bit as impressive as Jarrett's ratings in Memphis, but we never knew that until now.
1: Oh yeah. And here here's something that that will blow your mind and i don't know how they did this they had to do it early to, to get it done and run the tape up here somebody had to run it from knoxville to uh johnson city they taped saturday mornings and then the they went on the air at 2 o'clock in Knoxville and 2.30 in Johnson City. They padded that extra 30 minutes, I guess, to make sure the tape got there. Same tape, no delay. They couldn't delay them because they overlapped. So the same show played in two markets on the same day that was shot that morning. They could not bicycle the tapes because if, by the time that the Knoxville tape got to channel 11 in Johnson city, the people in Greenville and Baylington and part of Morristown and part of Newport and that whole area would have already seen what happened the week before. And then when, when channel 10 went on the local cable, and started showing in the Tri-Cities. <clears throat> they had to make sure Channel 11's got the same show today because they couldn't expose the business. They couldn't bicycle it. They had to make sure the title switches were done right and everything was done right. And Knoxville, Southeastern, was probably the only territory where the two main towns did not have the same card. They had to make sure the card in Johnson City was different than the card in Knoxville because, once again, the TVs overlapped. They didn't want people on Tuesday going, well, they they did that Friday night in Knoxville. So they had to do it a little bit different, which made booking this territory a little bit harder. And then you get into Bluefield. When they opened up Bluefield, one of the reasons that that they went to Bluefield was Louis Tillet wanted to get West Virginia going again. And because before they got local TV in Bluefield, the Johnson city tape was showing all the way to Beckley on the cable system out of Johnson city. So even the territory was so small that every TV they had overlapped with at least one other. Johnson City overlapped Bluefield and Knoxville TV. And I'm I'm sure probably somewhere in the mountains, Bluefield and Hazard overlapped. Then they added Crossville, Tennessee, which is only 60 miles from Knoxville. So those two TVs overlapped. Think about the headache of booking that to make sure every angle is still going, but every finish is different, every town, every match is different. Not every match, but some of the matches are different every night. as if booking to draw money wasn't a hard enough job. Ron Ron Fuller, people that hear the stud cast, if anybody listening thinks he's patting himself on the back or whatever, he's not. He's just stating facts and telling truths. And he goes to an extent to make sure what he tells you is true. If he, I don't know how many days I sit sitting in front of the computer looking at something on the phone with him, you know, to make sure that he, yeah, here it is, here's here's the ad, here's the date, this is when it was. And he wants to make sure that it's told and told correctly. And if you've never heard of Knoxville wrestling or you've never seen the clips from Chilhowee Park or or the Jacobs Building or the Coliseum to see the reaction of the people and see the stuff from them. I can tell you in a little bit where to go to look at that. You don't know what you're missing. But but he came in and he he breathed life into a territory that was dying. It was dying because the top star had died. If, If you don't know what we're talking about I'll, I'll give it i'll give it to you this way imagine rick flair gets killed in the plane crash and doesn't live that's whitey caldwell being killed in the car wreck here imagine jerry lawler being in the car with sam bass the night they were killed the top star that the territory was built around for years is is gone and people are sad about it, heartbroken about it. So when Ron came here, he had to rebuild, restructure, put it together and make something out of it. And he took it to where he was running four different states. He took a, he bought an operation that ran one city a week and then one spot town a week within 50 miles of that city. Knoxville was not a full time territory until Ron Fuller. It was a two-day-a-week operation, sometimes only a one-day-a-week operation. Kingsport was the five-day-a-week operation. Johnson City, Kingsport, Bristol, weekly, two spot shows a week. Fuller was able to combine those two territories and expand them further into Kentucky, further into West Virginia. So when he's telling you about this stuff on there giving you the resource, it's unbelievable of sitting and listening to him, but I've been doing research on this since 1995, 25 years I've been doing research on this. So I can sit right along and listen to him and read what I've got in my files. This was the greatest small territory that probably ever was. And I would say number two would have been the Gulf Coast territory that he bought in 1978 and opened up as a second Southeastern. I I can't wait till he gets into that on the podcast. But that's the great thing about doing these podcasts. We get to explain stuff and open it up to a whole new fan base. And people may only know a little bit about a territory. Hopefully today I've sparked somebody's interest or they want to know more about it.
0: I always say the funny thing is that because of when I started watching and, again, not seeing that stuff until later, to me, I've always known Robert as the Tennessee stud. Like, I had no concept of Ron as the Tennessee stud until much, much later. It's like I would have probably more known Ron Fuller for owning hockey teams because I saw some of his teams play when I was in Indianapolis, because, you know, I, for a while, covered the the hockey team there. And he owned, when he owned Cincinnati, they were in the same league. So it's like, yeah. I knew that, I mean, I thought it was cool that, like, when they would come to town, I'm like, hey, that's the team that the wrestler owns. And I knew that, you know, <laughs> this is funny, I knew Ron as Robert's brother. Which I'm sure doesn't get, <laughs> um, which I'm sure would amuse both of them, probably. But, uh yeah, I mean, I only knew the Fullers from the magazines, and like I said, I didn't see Robert and Jimmy until 1988 when they were in Memphis. Like I said, because yeah. I like I remember, like I said, I didn't see Memphis until the fall of '88. So the first thing that I really remember them being involved in is when they broke up the Stud Stable on TV, and you know the. Robert and Jimmy and maybe Sid and Sylvia beat holy hell out of Jack and Gary Young and Bruno. Of course, little did I know that's because they were sending them to Dallas. But like, that's like, that's the first angle. I remember watching, seeing Memphis weekly when it was on cable. So, I mean, to me, Robert and Jimmy are the stud stable. It's like, I've only learned much later that, you know, Ron was the original Tennessee stud and, you know, all about, you know, not knowing where Arn came from at the time, not getting to see the greatness of Jerry's, Jerry Stubbs. I'm I'm one of the many people, you know, that worships at the altar of, of Jerry Stubbs and uh, have argued in the past that Arn's tag team with Jerry Stubbs might very well be better than Arn's team with Tully for one they may have been oh, yeah. with, I... for, you know they may have been a team longer too but i'm like i always say it's funny that there's a couple of people that had so many great partners that it's it's kind of hard sometimes it's hard to pick which version is because I mean, you know you look at arn was you know team with born and stubbs and oly and tully and bobby and i guess even rick but it's like you know, give me the Jerry Stubbs version. The same way, like it's hard to argue this. It's funny to say that. Like you look at the funny one is Bobby. Bobby had so many great partners, even for like a short time. Yeah, that Coco. That's it's. I was just gonna get to that because I asked, I asked Jim this and I asked Bobby this. I said, not counting Dennis and Stan. I said, who was Bobby's best partner? And both of them said Coco which is what I say, too. But it's funny, but it's like, when you look at it, it's like Bobby had Coco and Stan and Dennis, and then you start looking at, like, the time in WCW, Steve, you know, briefly his bad attitude, teaming with Regal, teaming with Arn, teaming with Zabisco. and it's just, it's such a wealth of talent. I mean, that's a, I mean, obviously it's a credit to Bobby, but it's funny how many great teams... He's been in, and it's funny that I always argue with his people now that people joke about the stupid WWF Hall of Fame, which I really don't care about, but they're always like, well, look, they put in Coco Ware, and it's like, you have no idea how not a joke candidate Coco Ware is when you take his whole career. It's like, yes, you know, it's like, you don't really want to even want to mention the WWF stuff, but it's like... You know, if you would have seen Coco in Memphis doing various things, plus teaming with Bobby, plus being in the Pyts, plus what with he Norville. did in yeah, yeah, plus what he did in Mid South, I'm like, he's not, you know, he's not a joke. He's a joke candidate because he was put in because he's the guy that had a bird. But it's like, but if you know, like his whole career, you know, it's just. There's, unfortunately, it's like some of the guys who, like, when things went national and, you know, were sort of, by that point, had become opening men mat- I don't want to say, you know, just, you know, enhancement guys. But it's like, you know, you look at Coco or you look at Pez and, you know, like, people don't know how all the great stuff Pez did, you know, before he became Shaska. And, of course, and he was great as Shaska, but, like, that's sort of, like the joke thing that people bring up, but it's like, you know, if there are people, luckily there's still a lot of tape on some of these guys where you can go, you know, or, you know, how great Terry Taylor was other than being the red rooster, you know, or any number of things that Vince did or that Jim heard did to people or later people in WCW. It's like, these guys had great careers before this and you just, you know, luckily we have so much of it.
1: Yeah, know, it's, it's like I was talking about with Buddy. You can see so much. And here here is the other. A guy tagged me in something today who was the greatest manager of all time. And he had these choices. Bobby Heenan, Cornette, Jimmy Hart, Paul Heyman. I'm not taking anything away from any of them. All of them, very good. All of them, great. But where is the mention of Saul Weingroft? Where is the mention of Wild Red Berry? Where is the mention of J.C. Dykes? Where is the mention of Dr. Ken Ramey? Because they're not on video, no one will go back and look at them. These are guys that drew huge money in several territories. Sam Bass, another one but because they don't know about them. So when you say all time, you, you actually mean from the VCR era when you could record stuff and, and keep it. You don't mean actually of all time. You, you cannot you cannot question for a second the money that Saul Weingroft and the Von Brauners drew in Tennessee, Texas, Alabama, Florida, you know, all across the South. But If you ask the guy now in the dressing room or in the audience, tell me about Saul Weingroff. Well, they have no clue who you're talking about. None. And if you would like to know about Saul Weingroff, you can read about him in my book about the 1960s, uh, East Tennessee Wrestling. But these guys like Dennis Condry. Dennis Condry, people automatically say, well, Bobby Eaton was his best partner. Dennis and Bobby were great, unbelievably great. But I think Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson was the best Condry team. Coco and Bobby, Stan Stan Lane, Steve Kern. And I think it goes back because Bobby Eaton himself told me this. We were talking about this one night in the car, and Bobby said, I think the fact that we were young and hungry is the reason that we were so good. By the time that we got to Bobby and Stan, they were in a groove. You know, they go out and work. Yes, they're still having great matches. Yes, st- but they had become comfortable. When it was Bobby and Coco, young men in their early 20s, trying to make it to the top, trying to get that big break that drove them. That's why they're so great. Same thing with Dennis and Phil. You know, they're trying to prove themselves. To where by the time they become the may not express, they don't have to prove nobody. The boys know. You know, it's just it's just how you look at stuff and how much research you do and how much education of yourself that you do to what you know. The earliest newspaper for Kingsport, my hometown newspaper here. The earliest newspaper is 1916, and there's only a handful of them from that year. I didn't have to look, but maybe five minutes before I found an advertisement for wrestling at the Strand Theater downtown. Professional wrestling has been going on for over a century, folks. it, It has a long, rich history of a lot of people that you don't know anything about. And who do I blame for that? The wrestling people. They've not kept these people alive. If you're a baseball fan, you know about Babe Ruth, Joe Garziola, you know about, you know, everybody. If you're a basketball fan, you know about Dr. J. You know about uh, uh, all the great teams. Football, you know about Johnny Unitas. Well, at the same time that these guys were big stars in their sport, pro wrestling had offices all over North America, 30-some offices filled with great talent and superstars, and you don't know anything about them. Because the wrestling people wanted their history killed, rewritten, or whatever. They wanted it done, away with. Because whoever lives longest writes history. So with these podcasts, with books, and whatever, we need to make sure that the history is told and it's told correctly.
0: I always say it would be like if when the NFL and the AFL merged and the NFL would have pretended these are 10 new teams, all these new players that like, had not been, you know, that like, Hey, this is a new team in Kansas city called the chiefs. We're not going to tell you that like, you know, they had won, you know, this many AFL titles before the, before we, before the merger or before even the super bowl, or when the NBA bought the ABA, that Dr. J was a rookie when he got to Philadelphia, that he hadn't played, in Virginia, you know, that he wasn't like this great young phenom. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what, that's what Vince did when he, when he started hoovering up talent. And, you know, while it's great that, you know, when they make, when they make documentaries about the history of something, it's like, you need to watch it and then wait till the next week when the observer comes out and Dave can tell you all the things that they, either lied about or fudged and it's like yes that's sort of true but not really or no that's just not true at all when this is actually the truth like i mean you know that sort of contemporary culture is all about people wanting to shape the narrative to fit their fit their purpose whether it's uh, wrestling or again it's like you know who's being worked when you watch the news you know you always have to ask yourself that
1: everything's a work if it if it's on television and money's involved it's a work plain and simple don't matter if it's the WWE the AEW the NFL the <laughs> the news whatever it is and whoever has the power of the media can rewrite or or create whatever they want to. That's why you got to listen to these small voices out here like us.
0: I was about to say, speaking of money and television, why don't you tell us about the Southern States Wrestling Network, Bo? Yeah, you know, it,
1: in 1992, February of 92, no, no, hold on, February of 91, see it all runs together now, (laughs) we started a promotion, Southern States Wrestling, it was started on a hope and a dream, and, you know, I never, I didn't know going into that first night, if it was going to be one night, that was the plan, was just a one night to give some young guys some work, maybe do it again later in a few months, but then it grew into a full-time promotion, and for, for 29 years and counting, we have been running in East Tennessee, West Virginia, Kentucky, Virginia, and North Carolina over the years. Now we're not. We still promote mostly fairs and festivals, which is a lot of them are in danger this year because of what's going on. Uh, but I started taping everything from day one. And all my moves over the years and all my stuff, I knew somehow, some way, they would be someday a way to show all of this stuff. And we got TV 20-some years ago, and I kept everything. Everybody used to say, why are you keeping all those tapes? You know, what I said, someday they're going to pay off, someday I can show them, someday I can do whatever. And it, it the network started as a, way of course to make some extra income you know it's only $4.99 a month you got you got a lot of stuff to watch on there but it has grown to become a, a work of love because now I, I get to show my career but not just my career other people like Frank Parker and Roger Anderson and Ricky Harrison and a lot of guys that you the people outside of our home area have no idea who they are. But then also you look at the people that came through here and worked for me over the years, Sherry Martell, the junkyard dog, Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Ron Wright, Rock and Roll Express, Mongolian Stomper, the Fantastics, uh, Pez Watley, gosh, Demolition, Arn Anderson, Terry Taylor, Tim Horner, Sabu, Tracy Smothers, Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, and I, I could, man, I could name so many more. But you can look at a our network, Southern States Wrestling com, and you can see all of this stuff that uh, I'm very proud of, that I've accomplished. The first sellout of the Civic Auditorium since Ron and Whitey, the first wrestling cards at the Civic Auditorium because the city had outlawed wrestling in that building for 27 years. And I had to go to city council meetings and get it the lift, uh, get it lifted so we could run there again. The all-time biggest house at the Kingsport National Guard Armory, which you, you'll be able to watch that just in a couple of weeks on the network. Uh, so there's 30 years of history and counting on there. New videos every few weeks, TVs, house shows, stuff that I had shot way before I had TV. I, I was paying people to tape stuff. I thought people say you're crazy. Why are you taping all this stuff? In? I don't know why, but I knew somehow. I didn't not why, but how. But I knew somehow there'd be some day I'll be able to show all this stuff. And then once we got it up and going a year and a half ago. I helped produce Nationwide Championship Wrestling out of Ohio in 2001, and, and Scott Russell, who he said, man, put it all up there. I want people to see it. Joe Wheeler, who commentated and still commentates for me for years, had a promotion in North Carolina that helped start Shane Helms, Joey Abs, the Hardy Boys, C.W. Anderson. Let me see who else I'm missing. I'm sure there's a few more. Shannon Moore. All them guys started with Atlantic Coast Championship Wrestling. Joe, back about a year ago, gave me the entire library. We've been digitalizing that. We put up a couple episodes a month from there where you can see these guys in their earliest days. So we have something for every wrestling fan on this network. Uh, We share with Appalachian Mountain Wrestling. We share with... uh, um, I'm trying to think who else. Tennessee Championship Wrestling, another independent from the nineties here. All Star Wrestling, that's still running in Virginia. Championship Wrestling still running. So there's five or six different promotions all on this network, and there's thirty years of history on here of independent wrestling. And I've just worked out a deal where I'm going to start putting up eighties and early nineties independent wrestling, the UCW group that ran here. So you can see what wrestling was like from the earliest days of the independence to watch it grow all the way into what it is now. So it's not only a work of love for us to show, it's not only a little way to make some extra money, but it's also an educational way to where you can see how these guys got started and where they came from. And you can see how the, the, the business of, running independent shows has changed in the last 30 years. And if you are a new subscriber, go to southernstateswrestlingnetwork.pivotshare.com and start a seven-day free trial. If you love it, great. Then it's only $4.99 a month. If it's not for you, that's great, too. We live in a time that there's so much wrestling out there. I mean, my gosh, look, you can stream stuff. You can YouTube stuff. You can, you know... There's so much out there to watch. And we're just a small part of that. But we're very proud of what we've accomplished over the years. You know, we had TV here for several years. We, we ran the first events at King Sports Fun Fest. We were covered in the magazines in the 90s. You can't pick up a pro wrestling illustrated from the mid-90s and not find Southern States wrestling in it somewhere, whether it's arena reports or a byline or an actual picture or, you know, something. So I have found out. Through the network, like a guy from New Orleans who subscribes every month, he sent me a uh, email and he said, "Man, I used to read the results every month in the magazine, and I would wait for the PWI 500 to come out, and I would read about you guys, and then I would wait for the the guide to the Indies to come out to read about you guys." And he's like, "All this stuff that I'm reading about, then read about, you know, 20 years ago or 25 years ago, I'm able to watch it right now in my home." Streaming on the network. So, you know, we we live in a great time to be a wrestling fan. Problem is, there's less wrestling fans now than there ever has been.
0: Yeah, I always tell people, like, if you don't want to watch what's on your cable right now, there are so many different alternatives depending on whatever flavor you like. It's like, if you want old stuff, that's out there. If you want... Indie stuff that's out there. If you want to watch lucha, that's out there. If you want to watch Japan, that's out there. It's like there's almost no other than you're tired of it and don't want to watch any of it. There's something for somebody to watch. It's like you don't need to watch everything, you know. I don't. You know, Dave probably doesn't watch everything anymore, but it's like there's certainly something for you to watch. Whatever that may be, you know, it's like no. I don't, I don't watch, I don't watch new <clears throat> stuff. I mean, other than watch, I watch lucha, but other than that, I don't watch new stuff because this is a lot. I, I feel that way with a lot of sort of contemporary culture, and this may just be because I'm old, and, but it's like there is now so much old stuff out there that was not available when I was growing up or as a teenager, or even when I was in college that I can watch now that I don't need to watch new stuff because it's like, there's, you know, 60 years of TV that like I've been waiting to watch. And in a way (laughs) I don't, I don't necessarily care that it's good, but there's like stuff that's either famous or infamous that I like, like I'm sure you're like this. There are movies that like, you read about in books when you were a kid that they never showed on TV, either because they couldn't be shown on TV or because they were bad, but you heard about them. But it's like now, almost everything you could probably want to find, you can find. So if you want to finally see if my mother the car was really as bad as they say it is.
1: Oh, it was terrible. Always oh, terrible.
0: You can watch it. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you If you want to see, you know... I I think I told Mike this last week, like, because it popped up in my YouTube feed, I watched, like, three episodes of Car 54. Now, that was long out of syndication when I was a kid. And all I knew about it was that Fred Gwynn and Al Lewis had done that before they did the monsters. Yeah. So, you know, I so, love I wa- Car so I watched a couple. And then it was funny because not only were they in it, but, like, Charlotte Ray from Facts of Life was on it because she was somebody's wife. Yep. And, yep. Then, and then David Doyle, the guy that played Bosley on Charlie's Angels, was, like, the guest star that week. And it's, like, it's great, to, I mean, to watch old TV and see all the – I mean, in a way, it's like watching old wrestling before guys were stars. It's like, hey, and somebody said this to me the other day they were watching an episode of batman and james brolin was on as just a random extra he was like a security guard but it's james brolin and it's like now today people not only they may know him only as josh brolin's dad you know they don't even know like you know what a superstar he was back in you know when he was a hunk in the 70s and 80s it's like he's just this now famous guy's dad but it's cool and, you know, it's that way with music, that's way <clears throat> with, it's ways, you know, I mean, and again, mentally, you know, I studied history, I was a film critic, you know, I went to get my master's in popular culture, so, I mean, this is the stuff that I care about, but I mean, but I'm not the only one, I'm sure you probably fall in the same boat as me. Oh,
1: I I watch antenna TV, cozy TV, and me TV, that, all the time, and uh, I've, I've got the Fire Stick where I got the Cinema app and I can find just about any TV or movie show and I watch stuff on there all the time and, and it is cool like my my nephew he's 3 years old my great my great nephew Waylon and I will show him stuff that I watched as a kid and like the Flintstones he loves the Flintstones And he he just loves it. But then I tried to show him the Jetsons, and he had no interest in the Jetsons whatsoever. (laughs) He's like, "Ah, I don't even want to watch this. But it's cool to see him see stuff that I saw, Just, just like with my network. And here's the other thing. I forgot to mention this. There's two videos on the Southern States Wrestling Network. Many people saw the Plan B video last year when it came out. And everybody had questions about it and all kinds of stuff. And n- Nobody has told the story of it because nobody seems to know the story. I do. I've had that tape for over 20 years. It was never getting out. It was a bluff sent to Jim Crockett to try to make peace with Barnett or scare him into working with them again. And Crockett never returned a phone call, didn't send a letter, nothing. They totally ignored him. But that is only... One part of the video shot that night. I know the cameraman. I know when it was shot. It was shot in 1980. It was shot in Kingsport. Part of it shot at the studio. Part of it shot at Fred Phelan's house. But do you know plan A? Plan A was to start your own TV show and your own promotion. You can watch 90 minutes on the Southern States Wrestling Network of the Knoxville Five, as Ron Fuller has named them, their promotion that includes The Assassin, Ron Wright, Root, Garvin, Orton, Malenko, who all split and went with All-Star, plus very young Lanny Poffo and Randy Savage and a few other people. You can watch that there. You also can watch arena clips from Knoxville from the 70s that has everybody who was here, Armstrong, Fuller, Golden, Stomper, Dennis Condry and, and Phil Hickerson, Ron Wright, Ronnie Garvin, Big Bad John, even has the McGuire twins on it. This was the part of the film they would shoot to play over on TV and have the boys voice voice over what was going on for the live TV in the studio. That is also on the network. So there's all kinds of stuff on my network. If you, if you love wrestling history and you love wrestling today, you can find all kinds of great stuff. And, you know, it, it's just – We live in a great time, but we are of the generation to where we look back. I found myself here the other night, in the middle of the night, sitting here watching bloopers from Seinfeld and laughing because I loved that show. And then I got to thinking, my gosh, this was 25 years ago. This was a quarter of a century ago. Let that settle in. I have been wrestling I put up a result today from a quarter of a century ago today, from April 22nd of 1995. And I wrote out, here's where I was at a quarter of a century ago. And I go, wait a minute. Whoa. But then I realized, add six years onto that quarter of a century. I've been around a long time. I've seen a lot of stuff. I know how hard it was to promote your product and get your stuff out years ago. It is so easy now, but it's oversaturated, just like with the podcast, just like with the Patreons, just like everything else. You just have to find an audience and you have to give people something to hold on to. But if you give them a good product, people will find you and then they will tell others about you.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I heard someone today talk about a TV, an old TV show that was 10 years old. And I'm like, no, no, that's not an old TV show. (laughs) I'm like, what we were, no, general electric theater is an old TV show. What's my line is an old TV show. (laughs) Like if, if there's a TV show that was on before I was born and I am, you know, a week and change away from being 50, then, then it's an old TV show. Ten years. If it's in color, it's not old. It's kind of old or it's older. (laughs) but it's not old. But uh, you mentioned... And, P- and, and color, color
1: killed some TV shows when it went to living color. They had What's, a Griffith show. I can't stand it in color. i got to have the black and white.
0: Well, it's funny when you look at some shows in the 60s that you only remember in color because either they they didn't show the black and white version, the seasons in syndication or... It was like only the pilot that was in black and white because why, if it's just the pilot, why do we need to spend the money to do it in color? If it goes right. to series, we'll make it. Because I think I think maybe it's Bewitched that has a black and white pilot, but like you know, the series was all in color. Or maybe it was, or maybe it was I drew of Jeannie. Because of course, it's always easy to mix those two up. But One of those, like, shows from the 60s that went five or six seasons, like the first, you know, I'm sure there are people, even in syndication, like, I don't know if they always showed the black and white seasons of Gilligan's Island in syndication. I think they did eventually, but I remember there are some shows that, like, I don't, and then it's funny, there are some shows that were on so briefly they they were sort of split, like F Troop. One season in black and white, and one season in color. Yep. So, so it's so that one's fifty-fifty, you know. And then there's some stuff. It's, but it's funny. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Patreon there, and you have a fairly new Patreon. You've only got a couple episodes so far, but I want to make sure you get a chance to talk about that. I've listened to all of those, and some of those stories made me laugh out loud. The one. I think it was in the most recent episode about you, I think was talking about working for bad promoters and getting stiffed on payoffs. And some of those, some of those stories were really hilarious.
1: Yeah. I I can look back and laugh about them now. They were, they were not funny then. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You know, I, 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 I am a much better guest on a podcast than I am a host. And I've tried to host at different times. And it pains me to uh, sit and tell my stories to myself. (laughs) Because when I record these podcasts, they're mine, I'm sitting at home by myself, either late at night or while my wife is is gone. And I'm telling these stories that I know to myself, and it's hard to do that, And but I so many people tell me, especially every time I'm on Between the Sheets or, or different ones, Randy Hill's podcast or John McAdams, it never fails. Every time I'm on there, people's like, "Hey, you need to do your own podcast." Hey, you need to do your own podcast. And I was like, I just, I can't. It's painful for me to do it. And so, somebody kept on and kept on and kept on, and I said, I was like, look, if you want to hear my stories meet me somewhere and pay me and I'll just tell them to you. <laughs> and the guy, the guy sent me the, the link to the Patreon. He's like, you know, you can get paid for doing these. And uh, so it, it, it started out just like the network of, okay, what's it worth? Okay, is anybody going to listen? All right. Does anybody care? But then I got to thinking, you know, I want my nieces and nephews to know about me when I'm gone, especially my, my the nieces, my nephews, daughters and son. I want them to know about their uncle and the life that he lived, because maybe somewhere in there is a lesson for them. And I want them far away from the wrestling business. Uh, so I, I played around with the idea, and then I like, go, all right, I'm going to do it. So I charge $2.99 a month, and I do two podcasts a month. Uh, The first three are up there now. I'm going to record probably tomorrow as we record this. The last one for April, I do two a month. The last one of April, I'm going to talk about Ron Wright, because we just celebrated the – I don't want to say celebrated. We just observed the anniversary of his passing five years ago, and I'm going to tell you some Ron Wright stories. And I'm going to play some rare audio that nobody's heard for 50 years almost from Ron and Don Wright and some other people from Knoxville. Uh, And then I'm going to tell some Wahoo McDaniel stories because Wahoo was a great inspiration to me. He was a great friend to me. And he's been gone now for 18 years. He was one of the toughest men that I ever knew, maybe the toughest, but he was one of the best dudes I ever knew in the business that stood up for the boys and was just a good guy. And uh I'm gonna tell some funny Wahoo stories. And, you know, I want to celebrate these guys, but this is a way for years later because every time I record one, I keep it I put it on a on a flash drive now so my nieces and nephews can listen to it years. I want them to know about their uncle, but I also want to know about the people that I got to work with. I want them to know about the people that were my heroes, like Ron and Wahoo, that I got to grow up and know. I got to, I got to run away with the circus. You know, I got. everybody dreams of playing baseball or football or whatever. You know, and that dream goes away by high school. I dreamed of being a wrestler from birth. And in kindergarten, I stood up in class they, they had you stand up and say, I, when I grow up, I want to be, and then you see what you wanted to be. I stood up in kindergarten in Miss Connie Sheely's class, and I said, I am going to be a pro wrestler. And every kid in that class laughed, and she laughed. I was one of the first classes that she taught. My nephew, Zach, was the last class that she taught before she retired. And Zach had me come to show and tell. And she told me, out of the hundreds of kids that she had taught over her whole career as a teacher, I am the only kid that stood up in kindergarten and said, I'm going to be this, and I became that. And all those people that laughed at me if all either watched me on TV or bought a ticket to see me live wrestle. So that's pretty cool. But I, I want my family to know the story completely. And that's exactly what I'm doing through the Patreon and through the, through the network. Because I'm showing my whole life story, but not just me. I want them to see these people that are such a special part of my life that are not here anymore, that they didn't get to meet, like Buddy Landale. Buddy's all over the network, and I will be telling, I'm going to do in June a whole podcast on Buddy. <laughs> and uh, I, I I just want people to know about the history of wrestling, the history of my career, and I want to celebrate these people that, that have gone on that, man, I got to know them. These are names that people have heard. These are people that they watched on TV. These are people that they, that they saw, you know, at the live matches. These are people I got to share the dressing room with. These are people I got to share the ring with. These are people I got to share the car with. And they're all a special part of my life. And I want to make sure that their history and their, their stories sing on. For many years, even after I'm gone, because like Don Wright said, as long as we're alive, Ron and Whitey are alive. Well, you know what? As long as somebody in my family's alive, I want Ron and Whitey to be alive. I want Wahoo to be alive. I want all these people to be alive. I want them to be able to tell the stories. And and that's what I'm doing. Patreon.com slash King of Kingsport. $2.99 a month. You can't even buy a hamburger for that now. And I'll give you two hours plus a month of funny stories. Every time I set out to I set out to be educational and I set out to be entertaining. And and you said you've listened to the ones that are up now. Are they educational? Are they entertaining? Very much so. So thank you for your support. And thank you everybody out there, if I, if I'm not said it. Thank you for it you know, listening to us for the last whatever we've been sitting here talking. Thank you for all the other podcasts that I do listening to me and the great feedback you give me. Thanks for your support on the paid services. I try to keep it affordable. Uh, you know, I, I got little overhead on the network because the tapes have been sitting here. It's not like I, I didn't have to go out and start running and shooting stuff to, to get this network up off the ground running. And same thing with the Patreon. I, I can use the stuff that I use to shoot our, our matches now to, to do the podcast, and, and I do. So I keep it affordable, but I just want people to keep watching and keep listening. And I hope that you're happy with everything you got. If you're not, all you have to do is hit cancel, and then I know whether you like it or not.
0: I was gonna say I've been I've been a King of Kingsport customer for a long time now because. I know I've gotten a good number of Southeastern and Continental stuff from you. I know I got the the Bill Dundee stuff from you, you know, and it's all great. And like I said, it's been, you know, some of that stuff was a learning experience because it was just, you know, I only knew so much. You know, it's always better to get stuff either directly from the source or as close as you can get. And certainly with with that stuff, you're the man, you're the man to come to when you want you know, Continental or Knoxville or whatever, you know, you're the go-to guy, so.
1: I, I spent the last two and a half years, well, I, fi- I finished them up right right before the holidays, so two and a half, back up two and a half years from right before Christmas, taking my Continental collection, remastering it, because some of it was rough because it was on, you know, 35-year-old tapes. <laughs> uh, some of the shows were not complete. I had to sit down and figure out when, when did this air, what is, I went through and put them in order, the most complete collection you can find. It's not everything, but there's, I don't know how many. It's 50 DVDs, and each DVD has th- like three uh, episodes on there. Or close to full, as close to full episode as we can get. But it, it's all out there. If you've heard about Continental, that was Southeastern, they changed the name, changed the TV in June of 85, and it ran until Thanksgiving week of 89. So a little over four years. KingofKingsport.com. It is a work, you talk about a work of love, because that's my heroes, and I wanted to make sure all that stuff was put together right. And also on there is the Knoxville set of the studio stuff that survived and the arena stuff that survived and the uh, Ron Wright's promotion stuff that survived. And then there's the Knoxville 88 set when Fuller opened up USA to help fund his hockey team. So if you grew up a fan of Southeastern or Continental or you just heard about it, and I know a lot of it's on YouTube, but it ain't everything. I got everything or everything that's out there. So you can check that out too at kingofkingsport.com.
0: Bo, thank you so much for all your time tonight. And hopefully we'll have you back at some point because there's a very famous, handsome gentleman who we did not even bring up yet. And we've been talking for a good two and a half hours. And I certainly (laughs) want to hear your stories about him at some point.
1: Yeah. You know, it's. I started riding with Handsome when I was, I met Handsome when I was 14. Well, the first time I met Handsome, I was eight years old at the wrestling matches in Kingsport. And I waited on him to come out to sign a picture for me that I still have to this day. Uh, But I got to know Handsome when I was about 14 or 15, started traveling with him at 16. And I probably know him better than anybody that's ever been around him because I've spent my youth with him. And, yeah, I would love to come back and talk about him and, and anybody else that, uh, that has, has been, uh, you know, involved in my career, the good and the bad. And I, if you are on my Patreon, in May I'm doing the mailbag where I'm going to answer questions. So if you're not, go over there and join up for $2.99. You can ask me any questions you may have out there listening.
0: Yes, definitely sign up for that. Sign up for the network. Both, thanks again for all Thank your you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, Hopefully we still have some more episodes coming in the works. That'll be with you probably not this week, but maybe next week. So thanks, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time.